Well, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 25th of July, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history podcast is hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18, 1640. Since its humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged to be one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's also a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay or just passing through, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history. Congratulations. I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. The Greenwich Town for All Season show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, Michael Holupka Tree Service LLC is the business that we're promoting this month, and listeners like you everywhere. we got a great show for you, so without any further delay, let's get started. Coming up on today's show. On Greenwich in the Gilded Age, we return for an encore visit to Glen Airlie on Byram Shore. But on today's revisit, there's a little bit more. You're going to learn about a gentleman by the name of Addison Hannon and his family, hailing from Narragansett Society Circles, who came to purchase this great estate on Byram Shore. On Greenwich Life as it is and was, Erwin Edwards wrote, quote, Grass Island and what can be made of it has been talked of and discussed for some time, and thus it happens that it is not a new subject of conversation or controversy, unquote. A century ago, Neil Marrow Ladd was appointed chairman of a committee of the Greenwich Chamber of Commerce to study Greenwich's quote-unquote unsightly harbor. It was reported in July 1907 that Isaac Schofield, the, quote, hermit of Greenwich, who lived within a half mile of E.C. Converse's residence at Stanwich, was found dead last Friday night among a lot of chickens at the bottom of an old cellar near the shack in which he lived, unquote. Progress is making, reported the July 20th, 1923 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic, quote, in the construction of the new Masonic Temple on Havemeyer Place in Mason Street, and there is every assurance that the imposing edifice will be ready for dedication occupancy on the date originally set in October, unquote. That building, by the way, still stands today, and you'll hear more. In other historical news, 120 people enjoyed a second annual outing and clambake of the News Employee Mutual Benefit Association on Island Beach, also known as Little Captain's Island, in early August 1908. And also, in late July 1908, Commodore E.C. Benedict's steam yacht Oneida was one of the fleet of boats to traverse the newly opened Cape Cod Canal. A Miss Smith of Stamford, the granddaughter of Captain Charles Smith of the ill-fated steamboat Siwanaka, was, quote, twirling the spokes of the steering wheel 
unquote, of the ferry boat Greenwich on the waters of Long Island Sound. My friends, don't forget crimes and misdemeanors. My friends will have all of this history and more because, let's face it, there's lots to see, lots to do, and lots to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich. You've come to the right place to learn about that history of one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We're going to have all this and lots more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. A landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06836. My friends, don't gamble with your health. Eastern Neurological Services offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Its principal, Dr. Xiaoke Gao, MD, is a top New York neurologist who practices in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurologic Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders. You'd be glad to know that Eastern Neurological Services provides general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Visit easternneurologic.com, that's easternneurologic.com, or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. It's a fact of life that our health is important. Contact Eastern Neurologic today. You'll be glad you did. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. 
It's time to go back in Greenwich, Connecticut's storied history to the Gilded Age era when wealthy Americans constructed splendid mansions, outbuildings, and landscapes, a time that the late town historian William E. Finch Jr. referred to as the flowering of Greenwich, an age when the word Greenwich first became synonymous with the word millionaire. In today's show, we're going back to the homes from the Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book that was published by the Junior League of Greenwich. On today's show, we are going to revisit Glenn Airley. Its principal owner was Edgar L. Marston. The architect was the firm of Lord, Hull, and Hewlett. Its construction date was 1903, and it was located on what we know today, of course, as Byram Shore Road. In 1901, when Jenny and Edgar Marston came to East Portchester, which is now known as Byram, they purchased 13 acres of land from William J. Tingu, and that is spelled T-I-N-G-U-E, I hope I pronounced that properly, founder of Hawthorne Woolen Mills in Glenville and an early developer of Byram. The estate called Glen Airley already contained a house, a cottage, a greenhouse, and a stable, and Marston immediately set out to make improvements on the property. That very year, he obtained permission from the state to fill and level portions of the land, and the following summer, he undertook construction of a wall along Soundview Avenue, today known as Byram Shore Road, which still stands. Stone for the work was brought to the estate by boat, probably from the quarries on the eastern end of the Byram Shore. In the summer of 1902, this kind of activity must have been of great interest to the neighborhood because a humorous mishap, the accidental dunking of an Italian laborer by one of the stone boats, was noteworthy enough to be passed around by local wags. Edgar L. Marston, who lived from 1860 to 1935, was a founding partner of Blair & Company, investment bankers, which later became Bank America Blair Corporation. He was married to Jenny C. Hunter, who lived from 1865 to 1923, whose father, Colonel Robert Hunter, founded Texas and Pacific Coal and Oil, of which Marston later became president. The improvements were already underway when the staple of the Marston Summer House burned. Rather than replace the building on its waterfront site, Edgar Marston took the opportunity to develop a more grandiose scheme for his estate. Where the stable had stood on a rock ledge overlooking the water, he built a lavish new house or quote-unquote casino, as it was romantically termed. A newspaper article in February 1903 announced that the structure would be 80 by 130 feet and made of stone and wood. It would feature, quote, a palm garden, conservatory, plunge baths, billiard rooms, and music hall, unquote. There would be a series of 54 rooms for, quote, the family's entertainment and caprices, <laughs> unquote, um, in addition, the plan included a bath pavilion and an amphitheater. All this was expected to cost $35,000 and to be ready that July. This sumptuous retreat was designed by Lord Hull and Hewlett. The architectural firm was led by Austin W. Lord, who had worked under McKim, Mead, and White. In 1894, he had formed a partnership with J. Monroe Hewlett and Washington Hull. 
the architects gave Glen Airlie all the grandeur and sophistication appropriate to a house which would stand next door to Joseph Milbank's magnificent new home, the Towers. Whether construction progressed on schedule is not known, but the house and outbuilding certainly fulfilled the owner's expectations. In the style of a French manor house, the casino was composed of a series of silo-shaped sections grouped together under curved, sharply peaked roofs. Covered porches encircled most of the house's main floor, their, their roof sections supported by white columns and following the rounded ends of the house's wings. The center of the house had four stories, and its sharply pitched roof was pierced by gables on the two upper levels. From this core, a wing of three stories stretched toward the sound, its gallery glassed in part to form a garden room. From the road, a driveway curved through the gardens and led to a columned porte couture, which was an extension of the front porch. Through the front door, one entered a main hall, which also gave access to a porch on the shore side of the house. Adjacent to this hall was a music hall, it had wainscoted walls with wallpaper above and a paneled wooden ceiling with carved beams supported by classical columns. Large oriental rugs covered in pol the polished wood floors and a pipe organ, ever popular in houses of that era, was built into the room. The drawing room was dignified with its windowed bay and delicately detailed broisier, which included pilasters and carved garlands on the overdoor. The living room resembled a grand hall with coffered ceiling and beautifully carved wooden ribs, from which were hung two branched electrified chandeliers. This room was heated by a handsome marble fireplace and was furnished with a variety of armchairs, occasional tables, and glass-fronted bookcases. The dining room, large enough to accommodate many guests, was ceilinged with polished wood. This room was served by a large and well-staffed kitchen, which was supplemented by generous pantries and a well-stocked wine cellar. A study or smoking room had dark-paneled walls and leather-covered library chairs. As promised, the quote-unquote family's entertainments and caprices unquote, were remembered in the design of such recreation areas as the billiard room, which had ample space for billiard and pool tables. Robert C. Marston, grandson of the estate's owner, recalls that the operations of the house were overseen by a butler named Henry, who was a former slave. The house had such a large number of rooms that another grandson, Edgar J. Marston, remembers being lost there as a child when he was sent to Glen Airlie to ex escape the diph diphtheria epidemic. On the beach, the Marstons had a cove-like section of waterfront dammed to create a swimming pool, and nearby a tiny beach pavilion served as a dressing area for bathers. Architecturally, this Queen Anne-style pavilion was not related to the other structures on the property and probably remained from the Tingri era. Edgar Marston continued acquiring land for his estate until it totaled 43 acres in 1906, the largest of the great estates in the Byram area. Across the road from the main house, Marston built an imposing carriage house. The main and tallest section of the building included a rounded tower mimicking the design of the great house. From here extended on either side two-story wings with staff quarters on the upper floors. 
Although there had been a greenhouse on the property, Marston built a new one near the carriage house. The gl this glass structure was 150 feet long. One entire section was devoted to carnations, probably for indoor arrangements. In addition to the propagation area inside, banks of cold frames were placed along the south side of the structure. As the Marston's children became adult and returned to the shore to visit with their families, housing for them was provided on the estate. A house originally intended as a gardener's cottage was used by their daughter Jenny after her marriage to Robert J. Adams, an event which took place at Glen Airlie's garden. In 1912, Marston bought a house on the corner of Byram Shore Road and Atlantic Street, now known as James Street, for his son, Hunter, and his family. This large Queen Anne-style shingled cottage had stood on Albert Briggs' shorefront property nearby until Fred Hirshhorn bought the Briggs land and removed the house to its new inland location. Marston also purchased a neighboring house for his other son, Edgar J. Marston. In 1920, with Mrs. Marston in failing health, Edgar L. Marston decided to sell Glen Airlie. In 1923, Jenny Hunter Marston died, and a few years later, her husband moved to California. In 1921, Walter Teagle, who lived from 1878 to 1962, president of Standard Oil of New Jersey, and his wife came to Greenwich. Rowena Lee Teagle, who died in 1968, had been seeking a country house that the Teagle's son, Walter Teagle Jr., who lived from 1923 to 1960, would be able to grow up outside the city. The Teagles announced their intention to purchase the Flagler Estate, Northbrook Farm, in January 1921, but the night before the sale was to be closed, the house burned to the ground. Still eager to make their move to the country, they bought the Marston Estate on Byram Shore Road five months later. There was irony in the transaction, since Edgar L. Marston had tried to sell Texas and Pacific II Standard of New Jersey several years earlier, but Teagle did not like the terms. Apparently, the two men had more success negotiating the Byram real estate transaction. The Teagles put their own identity on the property, first changing the name from Glen Airlie to Lee Shore, probably a play on Mrs. Teagle's maiden name. In the mid-1920s, they added a swimming pool wing with doors that opened onto a view of the sound. Under Mrs. Teagle's direction, the gardens of Lee Shore became renowned. She studied horticulture at Columbia University under Dr. Hugh Findlay, and there met a student of landscape architecture named George Smith, whom she hired to help landscape the Lee Shore Gardens. He eventually became the estate steward and remained there in that capacity until the 1960s. Together, Smith and Mrs. Teagle turned the already lovely gardens into a showplace which required the services of 20 gardeners. Every May, the grounds were open to the public, and guests could walk the estate's two miles of paths to enjoy blooming rhododendrons and azaleas and a brilliant collection of perennials and annuals. Walter Teagle died in 1962 and his wife six years later. After Mrs. Teagle's death, the Byram Shore property was sold and subdivided. The sprawling old house was pulled down, leaving only the swimming pool wing, and a new house was built on the site. 
The gardener's cottage and the carriage house now exist as residences, and the little beach pavilion has been relocated to a neighboring property where it is used as a guest cottage. The enormous greenhouse, little used, still stands near the carriage house, a reminder of the tremendous gardening operations required to keep the estate looking its best. And that, my friends, is from the Great Estates book that was published by the Junior League. Now, I think there's a little bit more to this story, and it revolves around an obituary that I happened to run into in the Greenwich News and Graphic that was published on Friday, July 20th, 1923, literally about a century ago. And the obituary was for a gentleman by the name of Addison C. Hannon, H-A-N-A-N. Uh, he's not mentioned in the Greatest States book, but um, maybe in light of what I'm about to share with you, he, he should be. I'm not really sure. Anyway, let me just read this to you because um, there is a mention of, um, of the Marstons. And um, the obituary goes as follows. Well-known yacht designer and pilot dead. Addison... Curtiwaite Hannon, one of the best-known yacht designers and pilots of yacht races, died suddenly at his home on Byram Shore here shortly after 12 o'clock noon on Monday of heart trouble, aged 47 years. For some 10 years past, he had suffered from spasmodic attacks of the heart. Last Friday, he was taken seriously ill and sank rapidly until the end came. Born in Roselle, New Jersey, the son of the late John H. and Henrietta F. Hannon, he received his early education in the schools of that city, later attending Adelphi College, Brooklyn, for which he graduated and then spent two years in Columbia, subsequently entering Brown University, from which he received his diploma. From early childhood, he had a hobby of designing small vessels, among them being the Josephine Nachman, which is spelled N-A-H-M-A, Ariel, and Espirit. Perhaps the most famous of his yachting exploits was in 1913, when he handled the yacht, and I hope I pronounce this properly, Irondequit. It's, um, it's a Native American um, name, and I'll spell it for you. It's I-R-O-M-D-I-Q-U-O-I-T, America's Entry, and defended the Canada's Club, Cup after it appeared that the Royal Canadian Yacht Club surely would win. The Canadian yacht had won the first two races. Mr. Hannon sailed the Irondequit to victory in the next two contests, although he had never before stepped aboard the American yacht. A sudden call having been sent to him to come to the Great Lakes and sail the yacht in the final contest. In the international six-meter races against Great Britain last September, one of Mr. Hannon's yachts was among the victorious American entries. He had designed two yachts before the contest, one for himself and one for Commodore William Hamlin Childs. Before the yachts were launched, Mr. Hannon selected the Ballyhoo for his own use and gave the Le Esprit to Commodore Childs. It was one of his few mistakes in yachting judgment for Le Esprit showed up far better in the trial races and was chosen for the American team. He and his brother, H.W. Hennon, owned the 110-foot powerboat Edgethia, now in local waters, that would be Greenwich waters, with the Naha representing the Indian Harbor Yacht Club, Mr. Hannon won the Manhasset Bay Challenge Cup several years ago. 
Mr. Hannon was vice president of the Hannon Shoe Company in New York, of which his father, the late John Hannon, was the founder. Hannon and Son have branches in 20 American cities, also in London, Paris, and Nice, France. Besides owning a handsome resident at Byram Shore and at 1222 Abermile Road in Brooklyn, where he spent much of his early part of his life, he recently purchased the palatial residence of Edgar L. Marston Jr. at Byram Shore. And that, if I may cut in here, is where I, um, I see the connection with the Glen Airlie and the, the Marston family on Byram Shore Road. He was a member of the New York Yacht Club, Larchmont Yacht Club, the Crescent Athletic Club, the Blind Brook Country Club, the Brooklyn Riding and Driving Club, and the Indian Harbor Yacht Club. He was formerly a flag officer in the latter club. Besides his wife, who was Miss Lillian J. MacDonald of New York, he leaves three sons, Leonard M., Richard A., and Charles B. Hannon, and also a daughter, Anna Livingston Hannon, and a brother, Herbert Wilmer Hannon, of Byram Shore, partner of the deceased in Hannon and Son. The funeral service was held Wednesday afternoon in the Friends Meeting House at 110 Shimmerhorn Street in Brooklyn. Interment took place in Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. And so there, it's not mentioned in the Greatest States book, but I believe that there is a, um, a connection with um, the Hannon family and also uh, with uh, the, um, uh, the Greatest States. Um, very, very interesting. I was uh, looking online at um, various sources about the um, Hannon family, and there was one that I ran into. Um, I have this posted at the uh, Greenwich and Town for All Seasons blogspot.com posting for today. And the, um, the title of, um, of this piece um, is um, The Heydays of Narragansett. Narragansett socialite survived a difficult marriage before moving on to a shoe baron. <laughs> and it does uh, involve um, the Hannon family. And I just want to read a part of this. It's a bit long. Um, and, um, and I won't uh, go through the, the whole thing. But I thought that you would find this interesting. Of course, Narragansett is um, is up the coast from us, over in uh, Rhode Island. Um, it was uh, its own uh, gathering place for um, the wealthy and for socialites. The um, the uh, the title of this article is "The Heydays of Narragansett." Narragansett socialite survived a difficult marriage before moving on to a shoe baron. Well, that's always nice, anyway. <laughs> um, and this is from the Independent, which um, is. Uh, let's see, published in Narragansett, North Kingston, and South Kingston. 1900 Narragansett socialite Edith Briggs Smith, later Edith Hannon, had purchased Shore Acres on Ocean Road and was enjoying Narrag life in Narragansett, Newport, and Brooklyn. But she soon made a serious mistake. She gambled that a lawyer named James H. Thompson would be a prize catch. According to the Newport News, quote, Mr. Thompson was a fine horseman and rode about Newport streets continually. Then Mrs. Smith was anxious to meet him and spurned ordinary methods. Finally laying her plans, she waited for him to appear on horseback, and the scene was staged on Rhode Island Avenue near Broadway. Mrs. Smith, who was a very pretty and a blonde, fainted in front of Mr. Thompson's horse, um, and he dismounted and gallantly carried her in his arms to a house nearby. Thus began the acquaintance, unquote. 
Edith and Thompson were married shortly thereafter, but the marriage was an error because they were evidently terribly mismatched. They were divorced soon after in 1902, but not without fireworks. The Newport News reported, quote, During the divorce proceedings occurred one of the most dramatic episodes of social life in Newport when Edith barricaded herself in her house against the sheriffs, and for weeks the siege went on before they could serve her with a writ, unquote. For the rest of her life, Edith refused to talk about this marriage and was not mentioned uh, in the press, nor was it ever described as Mrs. Thompson. John Henry Hannon was born in Ireland July 28, 1849. The family immigrated to New York City the same year, and his father started a small shoemaking business in 1853. And when he was 16, following education in public schools with some tutoring, John joined his father's company, learning all phases of the shoe business with special emphasis upon design and manufacturing. Later, he concentrated on sales, where he encountered trade resistance based on prejudice against machine-made shoes, which were poorly made and unbranded at the time. John convinced his father to imprint the hand and name on their shoes and maintain consistently superior quality. Now, the story goes on from here about the, the founding of the Hannon & Company shoe store chain, which I um, uh, just uh, mentioned to you a little while ago. And, um, and the story goes on. And so the Hannons um, actually came from, um, well, not only in uh, Brooklyn, in New York City, but also um, in Narragansett in uh, Rhode Island. Um, it's a fascinating article. It is written by John W. Miller, Jr., who was an historian in Narragansett. I have this published on uh, today's posting on the Greenwich and Town for All Season Show podcast, and I refer you to go there and click the link and um, and take a look at this uh, for yourself. It's a very, very interesting article about a very, very interesting family and class of people. I hope that you enjoy it. You're listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted Best Coffee Shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily 
daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays. Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own. A popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. Speaking of Coffee for Good, your next hire is just a coffee away. Well, how about that? Now, did you know that Coffee for Good is an on-the-job training platform with Ableist for people with special needs? Well, it's true. It graduates or its graduates emerge with the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail sectors. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue in the historic Solomon Mead House, circa 1858, on the campus of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich. I encourage you to come to Coffee for Good and to see them in action. Contact employer at coffeeforgood.org, and you can learn more about the learning program for those with special needs by going online to coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. Summer is here. Gather friends and family, bring your picnic set up, and enjoy an evening of entertainment at Greenwich Historical Society's Music on the Great Lawn. Concerts run from 6.30 p.m. to 8 p.m. Music on the Great Lawn events are partnered with the country table made by Jeff Laszlo Food. Choose from four different picnic box selections for delivery at the Bush Holly House campus on the night of the show that you choose to attend. Music on the Great Lawn 2023 is sponsored by the First Bank of Greenwich, Edge Hill, a benchmark life care community, and Rand Insurance. Members are free. Registration is required. Learn more and register at GreenwichHistory.org or call 203-869-6899. Well, it's time for Greenwich Life As It Is and Was. I'm referring to a column that at one time was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic. Um, and this one that I'm going to share with you dates from Friday, July 15th, 1921. And it is about a place that for those of us that have called Greenwich home for a long time, a place that is very familiar to us, and that would be Grass Island. This is a piece that was written by Erwin Edwards. The title is Grass Island and its Possibilities, Expressions of Optimism. Grass Island and what can be made of it has been talked of and discussed for a long time, and thus it happens that it is not a new subject of conversation or controversy. But of late, the interest in the island has been greatly revived and stimulated in its purchase by the town and what offers it if improved. You'll hardly find anyone who will not admit that it could be made over into a beautiful seaside park, and there is no telling the benefits that would be derived therefrom, not only as a pleasure resort, 
but in the increase in the value of property in that vicinity, along both sides of the shore, and in other ways as well. This is what you'll hear if you should happen to incidentally speak of it, or ask a friend or acquaintance the question, quote, Don't you think that Gress Island would make a fine seaside park, or sh and should the town improve it? That's a good question. Quote, it is easy... It is so easy to access both the water and land. It is within convenient distance of the trolley and train, the depot being only a short distance away. It can be made to afford an excellent bathing beach. If the channel leading to it was deepened, yachts could land there at all tides. It could be transformed into an island, which there is nothing along the Sound to excel as a seaside park, for there is everything in its size and location to make it a beauty spot as well as a playground, unquote. Another quote here, Grass Island and its possibilities, just as Mr. Egan says, seem not to be fully appreciated and understood by the townspeople, unquote, said Mr. Robert Williams, president of the Thomas F. Carey Company. The town, quote, well, quote, the town doesn't realize what could be made of it. I think it, if it was made into a seaside park, it could be developed into a beauty spot such as one can hardly comprehend until he looks at it from every point of view. The town certainly would never regret the outlay, and the money expended would come back by various channels whose flow would be induced by the improvement. The harbor should be deepened up to the town dock opposite the old Greenwich Inn so that yachts could land there at any tide. It is so convenient to the depot. I think that the town will be sorry some day, and very sorry too, if it doesn't carry the improvement of this island into effect. Unquote. Warden Crosby was very enthusiastic in speaking of it. Quote, That's right, he said. Quote, it could indeed be made into a grand park. Anyone can see the advantage it would be to the town. Keep it in the papers and maybe you'll get the people aroused to do something, unquote. Forty years ago, I advocated the making of a park of that island, said an old resident of Greenwich, quote, but now was... But that was before the town owned it as now. The town ought not to hesitate one minute over... If it doesn't do it, it will regret it, as sure as you are a foot high. <laughs> when I spoke of it at the time, the reply was shot back, quote, Well, who'd pay for it, unquote? There's money enough in Greenwich to pay for it, I said. But it is a hard matter to get a town to take hold of such a project unless some public-spirited, active, and energetic men put their shoulders to the wheel and push it for all they are worth. In a number of talks and uh, interviews with prominent men, all expressed views with which left no doubt of their enthusiastic interest in the matter. Mr. F.S. Wardwell is an engineer of some practical experience in dredging harbors and similar work. He is well acquainted with conditions as they exist in Greenwich Harbor, and so his opinion was sought in regard to Grass Island. Quote, what would it cost, unquote, he was asked, to dredge a channel around Grass Island and make the water of sufficient depth so that a good-sized yacht could dock there at all tides, unquote. 
Quote, it would be impossible to tell offhand what it would cost, for I have nothing to go by as to what would have to be done. I should say in a general way that the expense would be from $100,000 to $500,000, depending, of course, on the work required. Um, and if I may, I'd like to um, emphasize that this is from July 15th, 1921, <laughs> a long time ago. All right. What about the island? What do you think of the idea of making a seaside park out of it? I shouldn't think the town would hesitate one minute about doing it. You've got an island that has great possibilities, and that could be made into a seaside park very readily. The location is well adapted for such a park. The situation is ideal. It is convenient for all sides of the harbor, and it is near the depot and trolley, which is a great thing. Quote, you have everything to do with the, within making it over, and I would advise also that the channel leading up to the town dock be deepened, for that is but a short distance from the depot, and yachts could land there to meet the trains. Quote, there are 20 acres in the island, you say? Well, all the mud could be used to fill in the island. There should be no trouble in getting enough to do by this by using a suction dredge, and then, too, it would save some expense, for otherwise the mud would have to be dumped way off in the sound. Quote, the first thing to do would be to have a survey made of the island and surroundings and then figure out what would be required to be done. After that, it would be an easy matter to get at the cost. Quote, I would be glad to make such a survey, and I would be pleased to meet with any of the Greenwich people at any time and talk it over, whether I was given the contract or not. Perhaps you you don't know that, uh, that Mamaroneck has an island off its shore, and the town is doing with it exactly what might be accomplished with your grass island. They are making a seaside park out of it. Your island, I think, is much larger and is better located, and it seems to me affords a better opportunity for development. I have been dredging there some time, and I speak from an acquaintance of the work and location. Quote, I would like to say, as an outsider, that the town of Greenwich should not let the opportunity slip. Let the present generation get the benefit of the park, because I believe that some day or other the island will be made into a park. Why not make such a playground now? The town would never regret the expense. One can safely say that. Quote, I don't say this because I am an engineer and would like to take the contract, but anyone can see what a great benefit it would be to the town right now. The other day, I was in New York at a meeting of engineers. The papers read uh, were most on, mostly on parks. The statement was made by a well-known engineer who had who had made a study of the subject that in cities and congested towns and boroughs, at least 40% of the area should be set aside for parks. Quote, he explained very clearly the reasons and said that New York had just woke up to the fact that this was true, that much money would have been saved the city had it known this years ago. Greenwich should not make the great mistake of letting Grass Island Project lie dormant. Unquote. After this conversation, the thought came, what is the matter with the Greenwich Chamber of Commerce taking up this subject and pushing it to completion? It is right. 
in their line. That would be something worthwhile, and if, through its efforts, the plan came to fruition, then the Greenwich Chamber of Commerce would have accomplished a thing to be proud of and could point to it with pride and satisfaction. It would be a monument to that organization, but will they do it? And that, my friends, was written by Irwin Edwards, and it was published in the column Greenwich Life As It Is and Was, or Life As It Is and Was, I said, yes. And that was published on July 15th, 1921 in the Greenwich News and Graphic. Well, a century ago, apparently, Greenwich Harbor was not something very pretty to look at. Um, There was a lot of talk in town at the time uh, for improving the uh, local harbor, and uh, this story comes from the Friday, July 20th, 1923 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic, um, addressing the very need to improve the harbor at that time. Neil Moreau Ladd heads a committee to push the project, says the uh, the subheadline, and the story goes, as follows. Apparently, the long-deferred and much-discussed work of improving our unsightly harbor is in a fair way to be taken up with a prospect of tangible results. That's always nice. A new committee of the local Chamber of Commerce superseding the former one will be formed by Neil Moreau Ladd, L-A-D-D is how you spell his last name, who has been appointed chairman with power to select his own associates, and he is most enthusiastic and earnest with regard to the matter. Mr. Ladd, when interviewed by a reporter said today, said that as his appointment as chairman of this committee had just been confirmed, he was not prepared to make any formal statement for publication. He expressed the hope, however, that many residents of Greenwich would write him their views on the subject of improving our harbor at the station so that he could be guided in the selection of members of the committee he is about to form. When asked for an expression of his personal views of the matter, Mr. Ladd said that he was tempted to state them at this time in the hope of arousing some interest in a subject of such vital importance to all residents of Greenwich. Quote, I have been informed, unquote, he said, quote, that for 40 years there has been conversational attacks at this problem. Perhaps were we in possession of what travelers on the New Haven Railroad say when they pass our harbor at low tide, all factions would be joined, would be joined forces and seen that something was done and done promptly. That doesn't sound very uh, very good. Anyway, uh, quote, no one visiting this locality for the first time would be lured from the train to look for a home in Greenwich by the picture of our harbor when the tide is out. New Jersey communities and some of our neighbors like Bronxville and Scarsdale have gone to great expense to make beauty spots of their station approaches. I have been informed that there are about 20 acres contained in the area under discussion. 20 acres of dry land pierced by two 100-feet-wide deep channels could afford an opportunity to build attractive small houses for the many who want to be near the sound, but who otherwise will never again have the opportunity in this section of Greenwich. Restricted to dwellings only, that 20 acres would alone attract many new people to the town, as well as enable dozens of Greenwich residents to own a place on salt water. 
I hazard a personal opinion, based, however, on no official data, that the money received from the sale of such house sites would pay a dividend on the cost of filling, bulkheading, and dredging. I wish that the high school was in session so that some bright lad could figure out how much money would be received in building lots on those saltwater channels sold at $100 per running foot. It would be especially interesting problem were those channels winding like the roads in Rock Ridge, unquote. Obviously, the uh, the harbor has been improved, but I, I will tell you that um, uh, my primary uh, sponsor and underwriter of this uh, show, Andrew Alexander Associates, has often voiced um, a need for further improvements on the um, on, uh, the uh, Greenwich Harbor, and um, I am sure that that discussion will continue to be done. Well, this story dates back to July 19th, 1907, and it was published in the Greenwich News, and it was about the death of a hermit, a local hermit um, here in Greenwich, and his name was Isaac Schofield. Uh, And the headline says, Who lives alone, expires in cellar. Isaac Schofield, the hermit of Greenwich, who lived within a half mile of E.C. Converse's residence at Stanwich, that would be Conyers Manor, by the way, was found dead last Friday night among a lot of chickens at the bottom of an old cellar near the shack in which he lived. The old hermit's face was buried deep in the decayed leaves and garbage with which the the cellar bottom was strewn. The dead man appeared to have fallen off the foundation wall, striking on his head on a box. Death was due to concussion of the brain. Schofield was 82 years old and had lived alone in a little tumble-down shack on the edge of the old cellar for the past 25 or 30 years. The shack, which was of rough boards, contained only one room in which the old man dressed his chickens, cooked and ate his meals, and slept. His chickens were kept in the cellar. He was never bothered by his neighbors and only occasionally by bad boys who liked to amuse themselves at the old man's expense, although they knew when to let him alone. His nearest neighbor and only relative was a brother, Jim Schofield, about 80 years old, who is a small farmer. The two always seemed friendly and uh, and almost always the only intercourse the hermit had with the outside world was through Jim. Once in two weeks, he traveled to the village store at Stanwich with a basket of eggs or a brace of chickens, which he exchanged for such necessities as his life as a recluse required. In his later years, the hermit was rather feeble, but was still able by bartering his chickens and eggs and by keeping a small garden to maintain the independence which he so desired. Schofield's shack was well known by many of the New York people who have their summer homes here and pass the place often. The hermit was always a source of much interest and conjecture to them, although few ever attempted to talk with him. The hermit was last seen alive on Thursday evening about eight o'clock, and when discovered had evidently been dead for about 24 hours. The body was found by the brother who noticed the un- notified the undertaker. Undertaker Knapp and medical examiner Dr. J.A. Clark reached the place at about midnight after a six-mile ride and made an examination. The body was taken to the morgue. There is an incredibly 
handsome, very dignified building at the corner of Havemeyer Place and Mason Street. It's directly, diagonally, directly across from uh, the uh, the firehouse and directly across the street from the town hall annex. Um, and that building, with its beautiful columns and uh, brickwork and things like that, was originally a Masonic temple. I don't know if many of you uh, people know that, but uh, um, it is true. This is a story that actually uh, dates from actually literally July 20th, 1923, a century ago, um, about that building. Um, it was in the process of being built at the time of this story. Um, it was dedicated in October of 1923. Um, but this was about the progress being made on the construction of that building, again, as a Masonic temple. Um, and the story goes as follows. Progress is making in the construction of the new Masonic Temple on Havemeyer Place in Mason Street in a satisfactory way, and there is every assurance that the imposing edifice will be ready for dedication and occupancy on the date originally set in October. In fact, it is expected that the lodge rooms themselves on the second floor will be ready and occupied for Masonic work in September. The building is of the colonial style of architecture of brick and white trimmings consisting of large two-story upright and two broad wings fronting on Havemeyer Place, with a wide porch entrance beneath the central facade, which is supported by four large white Corinthian columns. This entrance is approached by seven steps, the last in the series of 15, three to be placed in the street's corner at the beginning of the diagonal walk, and five at the terrace midway to the entrance. A walk will be built also from the entrance straight down to Havemeyer Place, and the entire grounds will be artistically graded, terraced, and landscaped. The present stage of the interior work shows that the progress already made to have brought in near, nearly ready for the finishing touches of the carpenters and the painters and decorators. The work is supervised by H.D. Treffrey for J.P. Crosby, contractor and builder. The masons are just now completing the walls, which are up hard in, in hard finish and adjusting the moldings and pilasters, etc. A tour of the building with Dr. A. E. Austin, W. M. of the Acacia Lodge, as let's see, uh, Esserboat. Uh, I don't know what that says. Um, enables uh, the visitor to get an, a, an adequate idea of the progress of the work to date, as well as an impression of the dimensions, proportions, layout, etc. of the interior. Dr. Austin, who is the accredited father of the temple here, is naturally most enthusiastic over the structure and watches its development with pride. Well, I would understand that, certainly. The story goes on. The, the front entrance opens into a curvaceous foyer on the right and left sides of which are large coat rooms. A hall from the center of the foyer leads to the great banquet room, about 38 by 70 feet on the ground floor. On the west wing is the billiard room of the Masonic Club, which will give ample room for four billiards and pool tables. The east wing, of corresponding size, will contain the library and reading room. These wings also contain the ladies' retiring room and the toilets. A large kitchen with all requisite equipment is also situated on the east side of the dining room. At the rear of the dining room is the enclosed fire escape with, let's see, with stairs from the floor above. 
All the rooms on the ground floor are commodious and well-lighted and ventilated. The lodge room, which is reached by broad staircases on either side of the lobby, is 38 by 61 feet. Its ceiling, which is arched, is 17 feet 9 inches high in the center and 13 feet 9 inches at the side walls. In the east end is a deep curved and arched alcove, the floor being raised three steps above the large room floor and having sufficient space for 12 chairs, including the WM's chair. The ceiling of this above is to be decorated with appropriate symbolical devices and the side spaces will have pilasters of original design. At the upper edge or the upper edge of the side wall, the heavy cornice molding runs around the entire room. On the left side of the eastern station is the secretary's room, and on the right side the treasurer's. In the west, a gallery, an organ loft, constituting virtually a third floor, opens and upon a balcony over the senior warden's station. Here a pipe organ is to be installed. Beneath the projecting balcony, ornamental pilasters are being placed extending to the floor. Two large chandeliers will suspend from the central arch and ventilation will be effective through a generous device, a genius device, I stand corrected, in connection with these chandeliers, the ventilation being produced by motors in the motor room of the organ. On the two long sides of the lodge room, a double row of benches will be placed, the rear row elevated about six inches above the floor. Practically all of the furniture in the lodge room will be mahogany, and all in colonial style. The floor will be covered with a specially designed carpet in blue and gold. On the Oregon loft floor are two good-sized rooms to be furnished with cabinets for regalia, uniforms, etc. A comfortable committee room is located at the front of the second floor. In the basement, a large bowling alley occupies the main room, practically the entire area of the main building, with closets and other conventions. Under the east wing, the large heating outfit is located with coal bankers, etc. The west side wing cellar will be used as a storage room. Many other essential features not mentioned here will, of course, be in evidence when the work is completed. And it is an assured fact that the temple will be as complete in all its appointments as any temple in this region. Well, how about that? By the way, that was not the original uh, site of the first Masonic temple in Greenwich. Um, Andrew Melillo of the uh, of the Freemasons uh, here in uh, Greenwich um, told me he was on the uh, the show um, a, a number of years ago. He told me and others uh, that the original uh, meeting place of the Freemasons in Greenwich was actually, I believe, on the top floor of the. Um, uh, the building at the top of Greenwich Avenue and West Putnam. It's the Tudor-style one that was constructed by uh, Isaac Lewis Mead, um, I believe, if I'm correct, in 1887. And so it was the very, very top um, suite of uh, rooms and offices up there where that was done. But this is certainly, um, I think, uh, quite a milestone. It was literally 100 years ago that that building on Havemeyer Place, originally a Masonic temple, was constructed.
You're listening to the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead, that's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. In a class by itself, the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store and artist's cafe is the discerning shopper's destination for unique gifts and accessories. Located in the Toby's Tavern building at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, the museum store reflects the richness of Greenwich, Connecticut's renowned history. Browse the latest arrivals in the store and online. Enjoy online shopping and pickup. Ample free parking member discounts, and complimentary gift wrapping. Open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and weekends, noon to 4 p.m. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, enjoy complimentary coffee and tea in the warm ambiance of the Artist's Cafe. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. Well, my friends, if you were an employee of the News Employees Mutual Benefit Association um, here in Greenwich, Connecticut in August of 1908, um, (laughs) you would have been quite fortunate to have been given a wonderful gathering of um, uh, friends and uh, fellow employees and whatnot at Clambake on Little Captain's Island, also known today, as we know, as Island Beach. It must have been quite um, a wonderful experience, especially on the hot days of summer that we are so accustomed to. to. Uh, this story was published in the Greenwich News on Friday, August 7th, 1908. And I have to admit that um, I kind of wish that I could have uh, been there. Uh, the story goes as uh, follows. Its uh, title is um, News Outing, Clambake Athletic Sports and Entertainment Enjoyed by 120 People. About 120 people attended the second annual outing and clambake of the News Employees Mutual Benefit Association at Little Captain's Island Saturday, and many more would have been present had the morning been as bright and clear as was all the rest of the day. The first of the picnickers arrived on the island at about 10 o'clock to find Chef Jack Flynn and his assistants, who had been on the island all night, had set up the tables and tents and prepared for the bake. Every hour after 10, the large launch at Collings Dock brought out loads of people while others arrived in rowboats and launches. It was a happy crowd, well, I'll bet. As fast as they reached the shore in small boats, which were run up on the beach, all started in to enjoy themselves. Some were soon in bathing, others engaged in athletic sports on the water or on the beach, while many more gathered on the shore to watch the different events. Not as usually happens were the games all for the male persuasion, for best of all proved some of the race and weight events in which the quote-unquote girls participated. (laughs) The athletic contests were run off throughout the day, and some of them had to be left unfinished because of the hardiness um, with which the bake 
um, was partaken and of the time consumed by this and other interests, the races of the Indian Harbor Yacht Club could be seen clearly from the island and all witnessed some part of these, especially the start. The first course of the bake was served at about 12 o'clock and consisted of one of the best clam chowders ever served at a picnic. This but whetted the appetite of the crowd, and when the bake itself was ready at 2.30 p.m., there was a general rush for the table spread in the grove. There were hand shells and soft shells, lobsters, culls, and bluefish, baked and broiled and fried, and for the seafood. Then came delicious chicken and sweet corn, sweet and white potatoes and other vegetables, pickles and olives, brown bread and white bread, rolls and crackers and many other things to be topped off with cantaloupe and watermelons. Delicious coffee and cream and soda water were also served. John W. Flynn was the culinary artist and he has been praised so often for his bakes and spreads that it is unnecessary to say more than that this one was like all others, only better. Every article of the bake was delightfully seasoned and done to a turn and the toothsomeness of the food and the voraciousness of the hungry stomachs kept the chef and his assistants hustling every minute of the time to keep up the supply. Everyone was full and happy when the tables were finally abandoned. During the course of the dinner, Dan Enright, the comedian, a former employee of the news office, entertained the humorous character of stories and songs. Foreman Thomas M. Hayward, of the newspaper printing department also sang a song, both being loudly applauded for their efforts. Letters of regret were read from President Roosevelt and Congressman Lilly, who had been invited but were unable to be present. <laughs> Among those present were representatives of several printing and stationery supply houses and representatives from the papers in Stamford, Portchester, and Greenwich. Guests came from as far away as Bethel, Connecticut, New York City, and Brooklyn to participate in the festivities. And uh, there's a whole lot of other things. I'm not going to read all of this. It was the results of the various contests uh, that were such as two jumps, and what, backward run or backward can? I don't know what that is. Vaulting for distance, running broad jump, uh, the shot put. They also performed that. I'll finish off with um, with this. Um, let's see. The final events were the tug of war contest, which proved very close and most exciting of the day. A team composed of James Flynn, Alex Sweeney, John Banks, John Levin, and B.E. Kelly defeated the team composed of Irwin Flynn, William Durkin, A. Loudon, P. N. Raymond, and D.A. Sullivan three out of four times. Flynn, Loudon, Sullivan, Dan Enright, and Levin defeated J. Flynn, Sweeney, W. Durkin, George Wanamaker, and Kelly in the last contest. Well, there you go. That happened um, in, uh, in, uh, on Island Beach, Little Captain's Island, and that was um, uh, published on August 7th, 1908. It must have been a wonderful and a fun time to have been there. Well, needless to say, we live in a very imperfect world. Crime happens, and so with that said, it is time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. 
Um, this is the section of the show in which we observe the fact that um, all was not necessarily for the best um, in uh, in Greenwich, uh, that there was the uh, crim- criminal element and, um, and so forth. Uh, today's crime comes from the year 1907. Stolen wheel recovered. Three boys try to make way with bicycle. And the story goes as follows. Joseph Grady... Harry Elg and John Splain, all of New York City, and each 14 years old, appeared before Judge Tierney in the borough court Tuesday, charged with stealing a bicycle from John E. Courtney of Sound Beach. That would be Old Greenwich today. They were found guilty, and Judge Tierney let them go, providing that the father of the Splain boy, who appeared in court, would see that they all got out of town at once. <laughs> It seems that the Elg boy had been working at Blue Rock Park in Bridgeport and that the other boys had gone there in search of work. Not being able to find it all started to walk back to New York. On Saturday afternoon, they reached the depot at Sound Beach and seeing Courtney's bicycle standing up against the telegraph pole, uh, appropriated it. They then continued on their way to New York. One boy would ride the wheel for a certain distance and leave it against the telegraph pole. And when the next boy walked, would come to it and he would take and ride for a certain distance and so on. In this way, they had progressed to Greenwich. The two boys who were walking had gotten some distance beyond the railroad station when Sergeant Talbot, who had been notified, arrested them. The boy who was riding, Grady, had gotten to East Portchester, that would be Byram, when Officer James Nedley, who besides being a borough officer, is a town constable, picked him up. So don't steal bicycles, my friends. Not a good thing to do. Not a good thing to do at all. This is a very interesting column or letter to the Greenwich News and Graphic that was published actually a century ago on July 27th, 1923. And its author is somebody that is well known to us here on Greenwich Town for All Seasons. And that would be Frederick A. Hubbard, the, uh, the judge uh, who uh, wrote very frequently about uh, things in Greenwich, Connecticut's late 19th and early 20th century's history. This is very interesting, and for the women out there, I think that you will find this interesting. The title, um, uh, uh, the headline of this article is Girl in the Pilot House. Granddaughter of old Siwanaka captain shows proficiency. And the article goes as follows. Four men on the upper deck of the ferryboat Greenwich were talking about heredity. It was the 4.30 trip out of Bayville, that would be in Long Island, last Saturday afternoon. On such occasions, one naturally expects expects to hear marine subjects discussed, and it turned out in this instance that the subject referred to matters marine that are remembered only by the oldest inhabitant. In the place of Captain Ben Abiel, but under his watchful eye, a young lady from Stamford was twirling the spokes of the steering wheel. The Greenwich is a skimming dish. She is very susceptible to unseen currents and to zephyr breezes, and a pilot must always be on the alert if he would leave behind a straight wake. And this is exactly what the young lady was doing, as Captain Ben said afterward, quote, 
I have had a dozen men try it, some of them experienced steamboat men, and not one has steered the boat across with the skill or precision of Miss Smith, unquote. And therefore, the four men in view of the young lady with the twirling wheel were accounting for it all on the ground of heredity, a very reasonable assumption when the facts appear. She was the granddaughter of Captain Charles Smith of the ill-fated steamboat Siwanaka, driven upon the sunken meadows in the sound, wreathed in flames and caused the horrible death of about 60 passengers. Captain Ben's father was one of the firemen on the steamer. A tube in the engine room blew out, and a general conflagulation followed. There were more than 300 passengers aboard, and it was up to Captain Smith to save them. He gave the jingle bell for full speed ahead. He stood in the pilot house while the choking smoke came in at the windows and the floor grew hot under his feet. He twirled the spokes of his wheel just as his granddaughter did last Saturday, and he drove the steamer onto the sunken meadows and saved a large number of lives. For years, the ghostly log frame of the lost Siwanaka rose above the swaying drift of the sedge-grass, a reminder of that beautiful summer day in 1880, when 60 people died through no fault of Captain Smith, but whose prompt action and heroic stand in the pilot house saved many more lives than were lost. Quote, and why not heredity, unquote, said one of the four. Quote, if Captain Smith had been a cringing coward instead of a brave and resourceful man, could his granddaughter stand in the pilot house of the Greenwich and twirl that wheel with such assurance and skill? Unquote. And that is signed by Frederick A. Hubbard. Now, if you have never heard of the Siwanaka, and I have to admit that at the time that I uh, first saw this piece by uh, Judge Hubbard, I had not. So let me just see if I can bring up my files here and share a little bit. It's very brief. And this is, um, let's see, on June 28, 1880, a boiler aboard the steamboat Siwanaka exploded while the boat was on the East River near Ward's Island in New York City, setting the boat on fire and resulting in the deaths, uh, in the deaths of 24 to 35 people. Our coroner's jury found that although the boiler had passed inspection the prior March and should have been in good working condition, the loss of life was exacerbated by the poor discipline of the of the boat crew following the explosion. Now, that's interesting. Um, the Siwanaka was registered in the United States. Um, it was laid down in um, 1866, and again, it exploded and sunk. This is, a, by, by the way, and I really am not a Wikipedia fan, but this is where I found it. Um, and, um, and it uh, exploded and sunk on uh, June 28, 1880. It was a paddle steamer, by the way. Um, and um, let's see, its length was um, 225 feet. Its beam was 40 feet and its draft was 6 feet. And there were two decks. Well, thank you, my friends, for tuning in to the Tuesday, the 25th of July, 2023 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons Show podcast. This podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut stands today as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. 
And as always, for us, it's a special place that we call home. Once again, the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management. We've been promoting Michael Holupka's Tree Service, LLC, and listeners like you everywhere. Contact me anytime at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show and listen to past shows for free by going to Greenwich Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday, the 1st of August, 2023. I'm grateful to all of you for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating Greenwich, Connecticut history. I look forward to being with you again next week. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.